0: Hello, it is 2 a.m. in New York, 8 a.m. in Johannesburg, and 1 p.m. in Bangkok. Welcome to In Transit with Sunday Bean. I'm an intercultural strategist, transformation facilitator, and solution-oriented coach. And I'm on a mission to help you adapt and succeed through any life transition. What if I told you I have something that can help you live seven years longer? The best part is it's free. According to the research in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, Becca R. Levy, PhD of Yale University, and her colleagues found that adults who developed positive attitudes about aging lived more than seven years longer than peers who had negative attitudes. My question is why are we not talking about this more? We're talking about vitamins, we're talking about exercise regime, but our just our attitude about aging can impact the longevity of our life. And that is why I'm so excited to have Natasha Genevan here. She is a researcher of psychology and aging, a blog writer, mobilizing wisdom. And thanks to her bicultural and third-culture kid upbringing, she's interested in cultural attitudes to aging, exploring age stereotypes, and self-perceptions of aging. Natasha, welcome to In Transit today.
1: Thank you, Sunday It's great to be here. I'm
0: going to say a little bit more about your background so people have some details about you. Your work is centered around the ways that we can disrupt age stereotypes through intergenerational learning. And that's something that I love what you're doing. It shares an absolute passion of mine as well. Through mutual mentoring, reframing aging, and wisdom sharing. She's an advocate for the importance of inner work and self-reflection and is interested in how we can take our life experiences, both good and bad, and transform these into lessons worth sharing. These include activities of self-inquiry, mindfulness and meditation, art exploration, and creative ways to realize our full potential as we age. So for people who know my work, they can completely understand why I'm excited to have you here today. So you certainly mean business when it comes to understanding our attitudes to aging and how it impacts our lives. I am so curious, how did you even come into this area of study?
1: Yes, so interestingly, I went through a transition in my 30s and felt like I needed something a little more. I used to be a designer in fashion and product development in my 20s. After I had my first child, I was interested in researching psychology. I'd always been quite interested in in that field. And I returned to studies at the University of New South Wales and took up psychology. And my very first project was on implicit attitudes to ageing. And we mm. looked at the, um, the implicit association test as a class and we all sort of took it as an experiment and then we observed the score together as a class and recognised that we all tend to have these implicit biases around ageing. And I was mm. curious to know whether a cultural background had a difference. And I come from two different cultures. My dad's Australian. My mum grew up in the Philippines So I have a sort of Eurasian heritage and on my mother's side of the family, it's very kind of intergenerational. And so I went home and I took the implicit association test separately and observed my own individual score and I recognised that it sort of deviated from the mean and I didn't seem to have as strong a preference for for younger um, as the group class, the group sort of average score. Um, And so that immediately I became fascinated with why culturally we do as collectively have a preference for young and we tend to, because of that, diminish ourselves as we age and older people and old is something that's, you know, not really um, considered attractive in Western culture and I think things might be shifting a little bit here and there, but overall we still have some quite, you know, pervasively ageist kind of attitudes, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. I find this so fascinating. So we've, you've mentioned Western culture and maybe you can't do this, um, you know, without over generalizing. but I'm curious what you know about how do cultural attitudes to aging differ? Because when I, as an interculturalist, when I think about, let's say a preference for hierarchy, we have cultures that give power to hierarchy and others that, you know, focus on equality. So age is also on, on the hierarchy. And I noticed, you know, living in West Africa that you show respect to your elders and it is, it's very much high on the hierarchy. So I'm curious, I mean, I have so many dirty intercultural questions right now like the intersection between aging attitudes and hierarchy orientation and all of that. But just generally, what can you say about what you've noticed Um about cultural differences to aging.
1: So the focus of my main research that I undertook in postgraduate studies later when I when I did my PhD and I really um, explored predominantly Anglo but from the Australian you know perspective uh, attitudes to aging and then you know went over to the Philippines and did some field work there in collaboration with the University of Philippines And um, I also did focus groups with younger and older people in both those cultures. And what I found was that younger people in the Philippines do, you know, from the moment they sort of um, can speak, they're given terms to uh, preface that before they um, speak about their either cousin or brother or anyone who's older, not just sort of aunties or uncles but even older brothers and sisters who are only just to just to keep in mind that you know that they're a bit older than you and that there is this sort of like respect mm. kind of thing and so it's not really just about sort of thinking old people are better per se it's more about just um, uh, a bit of reverence and reciprocity and all this sort of thing that is very important in these more collectivist sort of cultures and mm. um, you know a lot of sort of people will say, oh, well, you know, we we should really strive for equality, which is true. Like that's an important aspect of any culture and any, you know, particularly our Western culture. And I, I think that sort of um, elder respect isn't really about um, not being equal. It's just something about um, group harmony is so important in those really highly intergenerational um, cultures that I think that, um by having this sort of elder respect just keeps things very harmonious and that's what's paramount mm. for those you know intergenerational mm-hmm. ways of living
0: mm. but i
1: think the byproduct of that is perhaps you um then just tend to be a bit more mindful of how you regard older people and particularly you know the very older types of people mm-hmm. and i feel like that's perhaps something that's informed my um, attitudes to aging and my interest in, in aging.
0: Mm-hmm. But it feels like a reversal of a youth obsessed culture, let's say in the United States, where there is disrespect for people who are older, they are infantilized, et cetera, et cetera. So if I'm wondering, and this is also, I'm curious about the cross cultural research if people are treated better um, in those collectivistic cultures, because I know elder abuse is a problem. It's also a problem as well in Australia. Right. So um, do you, do you see patterns in attitudes to aging and how people are treated?
1: Yes. I mean, I, I have to say that like, unfortunately ageism and things like elder abuse can occur in, you know, collectivist cultures. And it's known from a recent report from the world health organization that, um, you know, like one in two people have, moderate to high ageist attitudes. However, I think that, you know, when you have um, cultures where individuals are sort of raised to be um, mindful of, you know, keeping group harmony with this idea that they probably should, you know, show some respect to their elders, I think that informs your thinking as you grow up that You know, not only is that a great thing to keep group harmony within the family structures, um, but it's also for your own sort of psyche around ageing and your own future self, you'll feel better because we know from the research that um, Professor Becca Levy and many others in that space do that as we transition through uh, ageing and sort of, you know, as we get older, if we haven't had more of these more positive attitudes around aging when we're younger we can our own negative attitudes can actually turn on us as we get older and that's mm-hmm. that's one of the things that we sort of are recognizing now more and more with with the research how
0: does that work like how does our attitude to aging impact our lifespan like what's going on biochemically or what's going on energetically that makes that impact
1: so that's a really great question, because I think it is more more than obviously just, you know, sitting down one day and thinking, OK, I'm going to just, you know, flip my idea about, you know, being negative and be positive all of a sudden. I mean, that's a great start. But I think what it is, is and it's because, you know, these studies have been done over 20, 20, 25 years. And so and and in different kinds, like discrete lab-based ones, longitudinal ones, connect, connecting it to health and things like that. So it's very difficult to just pinpoint one mechanism. Mm-hmm. But what what many of the studies um, um, are pointing to is sort of like how powerful the mind is, um, the expectation of the expectation of how you can age can really impact the way you actually age but i think there's a number of things along the way that could point to why this is probably such a powerful finding and it's you know some studies have found that people who embrace their aging more realistically and positively um probably tend to pay more attention to the actual things mm-hmm. that help as well you know like on mm-hmm. the on the health mm-hmm. side um mm-hmm. and yeah so, so so all of these things um, that can add up incrementally on a daily basis but really it's like the um, I've described it before is like the invisible hand that kind of helps you along your aging journey mm-hmm. is the really mm-hmm. having those positive um, attitudes and when I say positive kind of more like quite positive and realistic at the same time
0: Real, you know? exactly yeah so here's an example there's two examples I think about one so I'm I would, am I a runner? I'm a runner. I run regularly. (laughs) I'm not, not an impressive runner, but I do run regularly. And I know when I was 35, I saw someone running who was probably 75. And I said to myself, Sunday, if you do not get serious about running more regularly, you will not be the person who can run at 75. And not that I will be able to do that. Not that you know that has more value than someone who can't run at 75 i'm not saying that what i'm saying is for me in terms of my identity i would love to be able to run at 75 and because i saw people running who were probably in their 70s i thought oh my gosh this is possible is it exceptional maybe and and that is also a bit dangerous right that exceptionalism but i thought why not why why can't i try and i think the same thing comes to what I'm learning also about sex and aging. It's so hidden. Like old people don't have sex or like, Oh, that's gross. Like, are you kidding me? We still are sexual beings Yeah. throughout our age and it might change. But what I'm learning is like, Oh, you can have a healthy sex life and it might transform and change. But in, in your seventies and I watched my own grandfather. Oh my gosh. My own grandfather lived till he was 92 and wow. I watched him get a girlfriend. She was like in her sixties, you know, it was a little controversial <laughs> in the old folks home. And, um, he had this beautiful romance in his nineties, like late eighties, early nineties. And I thought, oh, it's possible, you know, love, you don't stop falling in love because you, you know, you turned 70 and yeah. that because we, cause it wasn't hidden from me. I just have so much more excitement and hope about aging because I think in our media, and I want to hear more about what you, the impact of media on our attitudes. I think when we consume things from the media, we, we often mistake it for a mirror of reality and we know that's not true, right? Yeah. So do you, do you have more information about the impact of media and stereotypes and how it impacts our own attitudes?
1: Yeah, I mean, I um, wrote a little bit about that in my research and I predominantly talk about or focus in on what I describe as the twin prejudice of ageism and sexism in in media portrayal. Uh, And one of the the, um, articles I've written about um, was I described it or titled it um, The Media Portrayal of Older People, The Good, The Bad and The Absent. And, and and really what I'm re- referring to is that, you know, beyond a certain age, you know, women's roles just, you know, drop off. Um and um, you know, the the one of the issues around why I think intergenerational contact and cultivation of those relationships is really important is because like your example, you know, you have a, a an exemplar, a role model, like your grandfather or for example my auntie remarried in her 80s you know um mm-hmm. and it's it's very possible right to have um a long life and experience all the things that you experience when you're younger it'll just perhaps be in a different way you know in a different mm-hmm. style of you know relating um And so the thing is, with the media, we don't have, uh, you know, many examples, although I do love Grace and Frankie. That's a great example of, you know, older, grown-up relationships, you know, in in older age. Um, But with the literature review, I sort of did, um, and, and people have done other research on this, and they showed that, like, particularly in children's programming, Um, out of like a huge sample of programs however many hours to get you know 100 say characters I think it was like between two and seven percent were old or older for example and out of those that very small portion um, they were usually portrayed as senile feeble and useless type of thing and so kids you know, we're like sponges and absorb everything, social categories, every other category. And as, you know, children enter school, they've already informed they already formed stereotypes. And so and that only becomes worse. And I think potentially with, you know, social media and just the level of media that we're taking in every day, if there's no change in the narrative, and for example, for females the idea that they are only valuable if they look a certain way and, are, and exist between the ages of 15 and 35 or 40, that's not a very, you know, healthy mm-hmm. kind of way to mm-hmm. think about ourselves uh, as we age, right, and to have self-efficacy mm-hmm. and empowerment and things like that. And and it does impact us because if we're not seeing, as you said, the reality in in the pervasive media reflecting back to us versions of ourselves that are considered you know, empowering and exemplars, and what you know, it does impact us. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's not to say men don't experience ages, and they certainly do, particularly in work and you know other activities like that. But but if we're talking about the media. I really feel that women, um, you know, women's um, roles in media are diminished. Um, I mean, we—I don't know if this is exactly ageism, but there has been a lot of conversation recently about the Canadian um, television, you know, reporter anchor who, you know, was quote to quote her blindsided and. Right. It was reports. Yeah. Lisa Laflamme. Mm -hmm, Yeah. -hmm.
0: Mm. Right. And we also, we all, we, we had this conversation, um, in a recent discussion with Ashton Applewhite in a community group. And we talked about this double bind that women have, for example, the same week, the Finnish prime minister got, um, blasted because she was being in her thirties and going out and having fun. Not that, you know, (laughs) how do you, how do you show up? Uh, you know, with whatever energy you have, there's, do you have permission to do that? Do you not have permission? And so we're seeing it, we're seeing people um, blasted. And the question is, why does it matter? It's because, you know, women, when it comes to ageism have more to lose because of the power dynamic that historically has been going on. Yeah, absolutely.
1: absolutely. And even in everyday language, we don't, you know, this is where the implicit biases um, that we're not even sure or realize are there until something's playing out for example mm-hmm. and I was you know discussing this recently I think it was probably in one of my post threads um, and you know just the language we use when for example I was describing um, something a, a sort of a lesson when I was doing gender studies when I returned to to do study and I said to someone a male that I know I said you know language is so subtle but can be so powerful and what if I said to you um about a, a, a male you know he's that kind of guy and he said I've not I have no idea what you mean what what are you talking about and I said well what if I said to you about a, a female she's that kind of girl and he said oh well we all know what that means mm-hmm. you know it's so subtle and yeah, it
0: gives me, honestly, it physically gives me a pit in my stomach. It went from my pit up into my throat because when you said that immediately, my body could feel the shame and judgment, right. That, um, and there might be listeners here who are like, I still don't get it because it's like, you can't be that kind of girl. Right. Because then you're easy. You're, you know, you're not to be respected, etc. And it's like, um, wow, that's powerful when when you frame that, the subtleness of the implicit bias. Do you mind sharing what are some of the biases that you've discovered about yourself during your research?
1: Yeah, I think um, it's interesting because uh, I caught up with an old friend who I hadn't seen since I was a child, but she works at the university in a different um, section. And she said, oh, you know, I saw you discussing aging on something. Uh, recently and um she said to me she was having a joke with her sister um I- in a very like fun joking jest way she goes oh I imagine if Natasha had Botox or something right <laughs> and um I said um yeah no I've, I've never tried that. I mean but you know whatever I'm not judging if people want to try that. I said but I, I do dye my hair um and it's, you know, mainly because I suppose I've always had dark hair and I'd be happy for it to all go grey, but it's not going grey all at once. It's just like these little yeah. bits of hair. And so, like, I, I'm still mindful that um, I'm just, you know, uh, it's just it suits me to keep it even. Mm-hmm. And when it's at mm-hmm. a point where it's, you know, I can make it more, more sort of less even or whatever than um, or more even, then I'd be happy to kind of transition, whatever. And that is actually a really interesting transition for so many women. Like hair is such mm-hmm. a, a mm-hmm. massive transition. Um, and so it's it sort of was on my radar. radar, And so, mm-hmm. yeah, so it's just like, you know, I know what the research mm-hmm. says, but my lived experience is kind of
0: right. still. Well, and you have, you know. and we see an award-winning newscaster. Again, we don't know for sure, but it's, yeah. there. there is and a hunch or a suspicion that potentially because she's gone gray, she no longer suits the viewer's tastes. I think that was one of the quotes that came. Hey, I got a little with it myself. I don't know. I've got some, some gray rock in here. And, um, I've asked myself, you know, is it, how do I want to show up? You know, if I am graying, um, and I'm working to sort of un- do my own biases on all, you know, many, many levels, like, is there hypocrisy in continuing to, um, balance the hair, (laughs) like you said, the blending or, you know, or is it my goddamn choice? You know what I mean? Like, that's the whole thing. Like, and that's something I've learned from Ashton Applewhite in her work is, um, it's nobody else's business. Yeah, right. I I get to choose what I do. I but I will interrogate that. I will I will look at what feels right for me, and I'll know if I'm betraying myself or my values. Right, and it, and it, we can't we can't say Botox is a perfect example. I used to be super judgy about women who did Botox, and I was judgy about women who actually wore like who took care of themselves, basically like. <laughs> Who cared about their appearance? Cause I was, you know, intellectualizing, you know, it's about being smart, not beautiful. So I was trying to resist, you know, patriarchy by saying, let's be smart, not beautiful. And I was like, well, why can't you be both? Why, why is it one or the other? Right. So it's my own undoing. I think, um, I think it's just important that we have these conversations. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think, you know, like you said, it, it's not entirely just one thing or the other. We're always in a process of integration, you know, we're always mm-hmm, integrating mm-hmm. different aspects of our own identity. I, I love that um, Justine Bateman has written a book that I started listening mm-hmm. to, and she's really like, you know, putting it out there and loud and proud about her, her, her aging journey, which is, you know, I, I think that's fantastic. I did see um, a post. You know, because I follow a lot of people who are interested in this area. Um, kind of, it was a recent post about Kim Kardashian, and it was a bit of a, uh, a you know, having a bit of a dig at her. Um, she she might have said something off the cuff like, um, you know, I am in my quest to stay young or looking young, you know, if I had to, I would eat poop every day, right? Which is like really sounds awful and she, uh, a lot of people grabbed onto that and just sort of said how terrible and desperate that is and, and you know, I was asked for some commentary on that and, you know, I think it's like there are extremes that people feel like we've been socialised to think again about that narrow band of what's beautiful and what's valuable for females to be and so I wouldn't want to, like, shame someone like Kim Kardashian or anyone who has those sort of like desires to be extreme. I feel like it's more, um, you know, as, as Becca Levy points to in her book, uh, it's really the culture that is to blame, mm-hmm. you know, in mm-hmm. terms of what's what we've been socialised to feel ashamed about, you know. Yep. And so I guess that's kind of when we talk about all these like what are we feeling in our own selves and I know what all the research says. I also know what being a woman, you know, in my early 50s says, you know, internally, Mm -hmm. the subjective Mm
0: -hmm.
1: experience, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah, and I'm so grateful for everyone out there who is um, continuing the conversation, challenging norms. Um, I know that takes courage. It, you know, staying in line with a culture is important. Uh, It could be even uh, critical to your life, depending on which cultural context you live in. So I don't want to diminuate the critical nature of conforming to a culture in some context, right? Cause it yeah. has huge, it could have financial implications on you. Yeah. It could impact your life, your access to your children. Like really, I don't want to minimize that. Yeah. And at the same time, I also um, appreciate those who are pushing the edges on cultural norms um, to create more space.
1: Absolutely. You know, I, I recognize that, you know, we, we live, you know, in a world of rich <laughs> and interesting different cultures. Um, mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to grow up um, not only with two different cultural backgrounds, but my father um, was a diplomat, uh, an Australian diplomat, and uh, he was very, um, you know, embracing and understanding of different cultures. But it is good to have a platform or opportunities to unpack how, you uh, some of the cultural issues that we swallow hook, line, and sinker can kind of impact our own psychology, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we, you know, yeah, what we're doing on this sort of, you know, conversation here.
0: Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, you talked about integration. What I love about some of your work, you talked as well about transformation, and that's another thing that we have in common. Um, I'd love to hear more from you about how you see your work connected to transformation, and particularly, you talk about purpose. Uh, one of your favorite quotes that you mention is, "You belong to your purpose before you belong to yourself." Can you unpack that for us?
1: Yeah, that's really. I wrote started writing this blog, Mobilizing Wisdom, um, after I finished my PhD, looking at cross cultural you know, attitudes to ageing, mainly because alongside my formal studies that I went return to, I also went on a kind of an inner journey of inner work, if you like. Um, and, you know, like many people had lots of transitions and, you know, got a divorce in my late 30s, early 40s. Um, and when the world was kind of swirling around me, I'm trying to complete studies, I'm a single parent, I decided I'd, you know, go and work out how to sort of calm myself and self-regulate. And I found sort of this, you know, Buddhist meditation dropping class, and found that as a way to anchor myself. But it also served as a way to kind of expand my perception beyond my own sort of narrative, my own little personal monkey mind, as some people would would call it, you know. Oh
0: God, I got one of those. I got one of those too.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we all have a monkey mind every single day. Mm -hmm. Um Mm -hmm. and so this is a way just a personal thing like that I've been able to use sometimes. I mean I still get overtaken and overwhelmed by the monkey mind every now and then. But Mm -hmm. it helped this is a circuit breaker to help me just Mm -hmm. drop back into a deeper level of of being. And that combined with the sort of studies that I was doing, which at the time was psychology, but also I was doing some philosophy and Western philosophy, Chinese philosophy. So for whatever reason, that that cocktail or combination of things came together that allowed me to continue just really expanding my perception and trying to really attune to you know, what are some of the subjective experiences and how can that inform this whole really trying to understand self-perceptions of ageing and personality and all that kind of thing. Mm. So I sort of did that whole journey in and continues, you know, we're always mm-hmm. continuing. Um, but I feel like at certain points it just really converged and helped provide a little bit of insight that sometimes, you know, people can, um, you know, can resonate with. So the blog is is not, I mean, I refer to some of my academic research because that's naturally what would happen. But at the same time, it's mostly just a sharing of that inner experience to, you know, as a kind of an offering for other people who are in my age group or, you know, uh, want to understand more about culture and how that impacts different perceptions. And then because it's my research, particularly to do with transitioning through life stages you know, midlife and, and beyond mm-hmm. kind of thing.
0: Hmm. So what would you if we wanted people to walk away with one or two practical things on how they can start shifting their attitude to have more positive and Ashton Applewhite says more realistic, right? Not just positive for positive sake, but actually realistic, more realistic perceptions of aging. What are one or two things that we could do?
1: So It would be really um, just to to be aware, just to start being aware, you know. Um, I think because we are so bombarded with daily messages, whether it's social media or, um, you know, television or streaming programs, just to start to be aware of some of the language of the way that ageing is framed. Mm -hmm. And that's a very powerful thing in itself, you know, to shine the spotlight of awareness on something is incredibly powerful. And then the second thing would be to realise, and I think this is like a lot of what Becca Levy talks about in her fantastic book, Breaking the Age Code, which I highly recommend, um, is to realise, uh, you know, she's she's got this ABC method. The B is like for um, blame, blame, blame the kind of like the surrounding kind mm-hmm. of culture, not in the way that we are trying to, um, you know, diminish it that we know it's important but that that it can also have its downside so the mm-hmm. downside mm-hmm. is is that ageism is given a pass it's still mm-hmm. the most socially condoned mm-hmm. prejudice right mm-hmm. so um so there's that and so you you realize that your own negative age uh, attitudes you know the ones that we talked about we still deal with gray hair all that kind of stuff is because of the mostly the culture right so that we've mm-hmm. internalized that so once you start to shine the spotlight of awareness on it and then you realise it's not entirely just something mm-hmm. intrinsic to you, it's something being very powerful influences. Um, and then is to really start changing that in some way to mm-hmm. to push back on it, have these conversations, you know, really unpack those little implicit biases, mm-hmm. the, the how powerful subtle, the, the way we subtly frame things are, um, and and then just try and you know be compassionate with yourself about it, and compassionate you know with with others that you're having these conversations with. You know, I mean, I have very robust conversations about this, and we're all still finding our way. You know, mm-hmm. and sometimes mm-hmm. it gets it does get a bit like very heated, and there's there's no one way to say we can't be ageist, or you know, there's lots of different views, and I think holding just having having space for all of you know the views is a really good thing, if that's possible.
0: Absolutely. I think it's also important when we talk about the other prejudices and biases. One of the things that I, because I have um, working on my social justice commitment and looking at, you know, how am I showing up to contribute to unfair dynamics? You know, what can I do to break down? And part of me initially resisted even thinking about ageism, because we have other important ageisms (laughs) where people's lives are literally being lost. Right. And so I, I I was conflicted at that. And then the more that I read the work, the more I realized that ageism is, is like the intersection across all biases um, that uh, when identities, uh, this sounds really nerdy, like are compounded, right. When you intersect race and age or your sexual identity and age, that then it makes all of those, Amplified, ability status, et cetera. So it feels like, although I wanted to resist that in the beginning, I'm actually seeing an opportunity for a unification um, of awareness for people who might have their radar only on one thing or only on another. Uh, it might expand our awareness to to other ways in which people are being disadvantaged or privileged, right? I just yeah. wanted to say that. I think mean, it's important to put that out there in the conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think you know, ageism is is one of the unfortunately you know isms. I mean, obviously, you know, there's intersectionality uh, with 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 race and gender, um, and then also there is unequal aging in terms of you know whatever life trajectory you've experienced in terms of the socioeconomic position that you've been born into. You know, so there's all of these. Um, you know, these things that that come into it and, you know, social justice um, is is absolutely important for marginalised groups. Um, And then, of course, you know, we're all ageing, so that is a big unifying force. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we can kind of uh, recognise that the way that we've traditionally been seeing, you know, older people and the ageing population um, and stop sort of, really only framing it as negative and recognize that you know realistically yes we we decline in the life course and we eventually die but there's a huge you know opportunity with this longevity we've gained over the last century to bring our attitudes more in line with the longevity we have right we've mm-hmm. we've grown kind of in terms of the longevity another 30 years over the last century we're living now to 80 and 90 Mm-hmm. but our attitudes seem to be going in the opposite direction. Yes.
0: yes. That's so interesting. Oh, there's so much more I want to talk about, but I wanted to turn our attention a little bit to you, if you don't mind. Um, sure. You mentioned about your own personal transformation. And one of the things that I'm committed to is ambitious transformation and transition, right? Our lives are constantly in transit. So many layers, whether it's health or family or profession. Um, and then, so that's just one, one way to think about, I'm curious, what are some of the transitions that you're feeling right now?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm in my early fifties. Um, I, my youngest is completing high school. Um, you know, I'm sort of feeling like it won't be much longer now until I'm almost like an empty nest (laughs) situation.
0: Mm -hmm, Um,
1: but interestingly, also, because I returned to studies in my, you know, 30s and kept going and then kind of, you know, got a postgraduate degree in my 40s, I'm sort of in a stage where most of my colleagues are younger than me. You know, I've sort mm. of reinvented myself in, in a n- new role in academia. And so I'm kind of still in the early career <laughs> sort of mm-hmm. like level mm-hmm. as, a, as a, you know, so. um And um, and then, you know, just as a person in her early 50s, you know, I guess last year was a year of many things. The year before, unfortunately, my mum passed away um, just at the beginning of the um, the pandemic and, uh, you know, it intersected with, um, you know, menopause and, you know, (laughs) all of these great things. And also trying to. Oh, my gosh. To carve a path in this sort of new career I'd established after deciding, you know, in my wisdom to go back and study. (laughs) So, you know, there's a lot.
0: Mm. That's exactly why I talk about life in transit, because look at all that you're holding on your shoulders right? That Mm -hmm. is incredible. And so I'm thinking about, you know, when we think about the transformation that's going on, that is shaping us, sometimes it's internal. Like you, I think I've seen that in your work as well. Like you hear a whisper of something inside, or it could be something external, like, um, an unexpected divorce or, um, the COVID crisis, like whatever it might be, or it could be something ambitious, like a performance, you know, goal that you have. Are you feeling all of those right now? Is one tugging on you more than the other? Tell me more about where you're tra- in your own transformation process.
1: It's funny. I, I was looking you know, at those three dimensions and feeling like um, I am absolutely being pulled in every single direction of those internally, mm-hmm. externally. Um, and so I actually messaged someone, to, to a colleague today, describing my, my work. Day or my work life currently, and I used to, a Dolly Parton quote that I love. I said, "I'm busier than a one-legged man in a butt kicking competition."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic! Oh yeah. my gosh, yeah. So that is that's a lot. So, um, th- with all of that in consideration, how would you define ambitious right now? I mean, for me, because I am a doer, ambitious means doing less, actually. Right mm-hmm. so ambitious isn't it has to be outside the scope or scale externally defined. you need to define it, so what is ambitious for you?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think ambitious for me in this stage of life uh is is very different to what ambitious meant for me uh in my you know twenties and thirties. I think it's also many people report you know this as they get older and sort of the midlife and beyond um that's sort of like You know, gaining uh, aspects of your identity and goals, and sort of like, sort of, it's a bit of an ego project when you're younger. Uh, It's not to Mm -hmm. say we don't have egos when we're older, but I feel like it's about like trying to strip some of that back and let some of that Mm -hmm. stuff go. And also, Mm -hmm. I've just I feel like um, I I um, have put so much out there into the into the universe or just out there generally that now I'm kind of just riding the wave of what's been created and um, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. trying to not strive as much, but really trying yeah. to just steer my way through these waves that I've kind mm-hmm. of created. <laughs> mm.
0: That's so wonderful. So um, I know our time is coming to a close. I'm just curious, um, what are you working on right now that you think it's important for people to check out?
1: Well, I... Um, In my research, um, I'm just about to launch um, a study uh, where people, it's called, uh, its acronym is DECODE, but that stands for um, Daily Life Context and Age-Based judgments. And what it is, it's a study within a project um, that my supervisor, Karen Anstey, um, has called The Lab Without Walls. And it's a short four week study, but I'm, I'm inviting participants of all ages or over 18 to sort of 80 and beyond to sign up and give me um, a sense of each day, whether they experience or become aware of any age based judgments in mm. a set of domains like work or, you know, to do with health or to do with their finances or a set of domains that's been researched to show that both younger and older people experience age-based judgments.
0: Mm. Mm. And so
1: I'm going to be launching that soon um, in, in locally in Sydney in, in the Lab Without Walls. And it'll be interesting to sort of see. Um, I'll be asking people about subjective age, like every single day they'll just report to me, like, how old they feel today because some some days I feel like 20 and other mm-hmm. days i feel like my menopausal 52 year old you know what i mean and so yeah. it'll be interesting to kind of mm-hmm. see across the age groups like what how consistent that is you know because often older people uh report feeling younger a lot yeah. of the time as well so right. there's so, so much uh, yeah so much to unpack there mm-hmm.
0: I'm just fascinated. I think my um when we look at the impact of attitude on health, I look at my my parents, they are they live young in their hearts and their attitudes and you physically see it. It's, it's incredible. It's almost embarrassing. Like when they go to their high school reunion, they like are like, you guys are in the wrong reunion, you know, like (laughs) they really stick out, but it is, it's because of that inner fire that they feel, I think it impacts their health and and all of that. So I love that. I want high quality of life, however people define it, uh, for each and every person. So if we can access that through our attitudes and that can actually impact the quality of our life, um, individually and also for others that I don't put those things on others. I think it's a beautiful place to start. So thank you so much for sharing your research and your wisdom. Oh my gosh. This is,
1: oh, I just you. love
0: that. Yeah. It's been wonderful. <laughs> and my, my inner, you know, academic is just so excited to hear about the research. Um, I appreciate it so much. And for those who've been listening, um, I hope you will take away the one thing she said about how powerful shining a spotlight is at awareness, um, because that can impact then how we're showing up for ourselves and how we're showing up for others. So I will close on one of Natasha's favorite quotes from Mark Twain The two most important days are the day you were born and the day you know why.